Great, thanks guys, and good morning everyone. Welcome, welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris, I'm one of the pastors here, so um, I think as Spence and Peter said, if you're visiting today, uh, thanks for being here, thanks for joining us for one of our gatherings. Uh, you, uh, you have come at a, really in one sense a great time, we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Galatians, which is a New Testament book that I'll talk uh, a bit more about here in a, in a second, but if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you uh, know where that is, that, that'd be great, uh, it's kind of towards the end of your Bible. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians is kind of the first, a chunk of four books there. If you find one of the other ones, it kind of gets your bearings and your reference, but uh, towards the beginning of the, the New Testament. Uh, Peter did a great job at recapping where we were. Oh, thank you. Gosh, I, I didn't even think about it till right now. Thanks so much. Yep. And you turn it on too. Thanks, brother. Um, Peter did a great job at kind of recapping where we've been so far in the book, but I will, I'll say the, kind of the same thing again if you missed that, uh, but just also if you're new to the Bible to make sure you're hearing this or at least some of it. Uh, Galatians is a New Testament letter. Uh, there's a whole genre of the New Testament called the epistles, which means the letters. So they're actual historical letters written mostly by the Apostle Paul, but by other New Testament leaders, early church leaders as well, to specific historical churches in certain cities, or in this case, regions. So Galatia is a, is a region, it's a Roman province of the day in Asia Minor, so think like modern-day Turkey, uh, north of the Galilean region uh, or province and Judean province where Jesus uh, grew up and died, respectively, in those two areas. Uh, but north there, which was full of Gentiles and Jews. So people who were not Jewish, who were hearing about the gospel, believing. And Paul went there to start churches and establish them. He's writing back to them to encourage these people for different reasons. So every letter has an occasion. Uh, and we'll talk more about Galatians, uh, the Galatians occasion today. Uh, last week we did too, uh, but as Peter said, we talked more about the author, but we'll talk more about the occasion today, catch you guys up to speed, and, we'll, and, and to kind of frame the letter a bit so that the rest of it, we can read it in light of that occasion and learn more about the gospel uh, through it. But, um, but as Peter was saying, last week, if you weren't here, we looked more at the author Paul, the apostle, who wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, and looked at his conversion narrative in Acts chapter 9. Uh, uh, he was, Paul was a uh, there's a lot of things we looked, we looked at in Acts 9, but he was, uh, we, we learned, a, a zealous Jew. He was a Jewish a Christian murderer and imprisoner uh, who Jesus found and saved. And so even just that alone is, is, is intriguing. If you didn't know that about your Bibles, uh, a big chunk of the Bible proper, but then the New Testament, half the New Testament was written by a very, very, very bad person which is not really how we think about it necessarily, right? He wasn't just this, this perfect guy or this great guy who earned the right to, to, to write it. He was given this, this role. And that's why he starts the book by saying, I'm an apostle uh, not by, by man or through men, but by Jesus Christ. I was given this. I'm a very, he, he would say about himself, the worst of people, the worst of guys who got this ministry to write, uh, to, to be an apostle, to be a sent one, to be kind of an early church pastor, but then to have this ministry of, getting a special inspiration to write a big chunk of the Bible. A guy who used to kill Christians is now defending and preaching the faith that he used to persecute. This, this, uh, in his eyes, this Jewish sect that was kind of uprising in the first century, seeking to squash it out in the name of God, uh, is now uh, defending it. And, and, and in this book, really, really arguing for it. He's being persecuted for it. He's suffering for it. He's being hated for it. So it's like, it's like the 180 of 180s in terms of like spirituality, in terms of his just perspective on Jesus, his perspective on what he did, who he was, his perspective on the Bible, his perspective on just his spirituality in general, what it means to be, to be saved. 
So as we read, uh, what I want to do is go back and read to set up this week's passage. We're going to actually look at um, verses 6 to 10 today in chapter 1. But I want to set it up by reading last week's section 2 if you weren't here. But you'll see how it kind of flows into it, but also there's kind of a jarring uh, change of tone between verses 5 and 6. That's really important to get to, and I'll talk about that. But just note that as we, as we read. So, so here we go, verses 1 to 5 to begin. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of, God, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay, so uh, what I want to do today is frame this uh, in kind of a three things we learn about the gospel from Paul's animated beginning kind of way. So Paul is very animated here. If, if you've read actually um, others of his letters in the New Testament, the way he begins here in kind of this expansive uh, greeting, and he gets right down to business, is a bit unique for Paul. In other, others of his letters, he begins with, uh, I thank my God every time I remember you. I'm so thankful for you. He wishes kind of comfort upon them. He celebrates what God is doing in their midst. But he doesn't do that here. He greets them the same way. He addresses the gospel. This is what the gospel is, that Jesus gave himself, gave himself for all of us, for our sins to deliver us or, or free us as if we were enslaved to this present evil age. That's the gospel. He wishes that, prays that afresh upon this group of Christians in this greater region, these, all these churches. Then he gets right down to business, changes tone, and, and in kind of an anger and angst, he says, I'm astonished you're so quickly leaving grace. I'm astonished you're so quickly turning to a different gospel, even though there isn't another gospel, so it's a fabrication in your mind. In your, in your mind, you're moving to a different gospel, a different idea. You may not realize it, but I'm telling you, there actually is no other gospel. There is only, there's only one. So the occasion of this letter, this came up last week, but, if, uh, but to remember this, or, or if you're new to the book or just to our church, the occasion of the letter is that there are some that are infiltrating the Galatian churches on different levels, infiltrating the churches, seeking to, and this, these are Paul's words, distort or change the gospel of Christ. The gospel that is the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins on that cross 2,000 years ago in a substitutionary manner. So God gave his son to die in our place. God became human so he could die for sinful human beings. He died to destroy the works of the devil. He died to usher in divine forgiveness for sinners. That's the good news. And the good news is not just that that happened, but that it's all on him. Otherwise, it kind of ceases to be good news if it's at least in part on, on us. 
So the gospel is that God worked in history through his son to save us from our sins. He died in our place. He rose again to defeat death. And he did it as a gift. He did it because he wanted to. Last week we looked at this, the end of, I think it's in verse 5, the end of that last section says, by the will of God our Father. So according to God's will, he wanted to do this. He wanted to save. He wanted to substitute himself. He wanted to show us grace. He wanted to show us mercy. Or like Paul on that road to Damascus, if you were here last week, or if you know Acts 9, he wanted to interrupt our life. He wanted to interrupt our religious misguided zeal. He wanted to interrupt the things we thought were good but were actually evil. He wanted to find us when we weren't even seeking for him. That's how much he cares. That's how much he loves. That's how much he has to be involved. So tons of good news in that. Lots of ways to explain it, but that's what the gospel is and how he starts to touch on it in the first five verses of this book even. And if you you read other parts of the New Testament too, you might know this is a big issue in the first century. People are coming in seeking to distort that gospel, seeking to change it, seeking to, to add to it. Sometimes they're called wolves, so it's a, a metaphor for Christians being sheep, and then there's wolves kind of in sheep's clothing, sneaking in, seeking to devour sheep and, and actually lead them astray from Christ. Here in this book, though, they're called something different. And we'll see this name come up later in the book, but they're called Judaizers. Judaizers are infiltrating the Galatian churches with the message of, Jesus is great. The gospel's awesome, but you also need to become a Jew outwardly through circumcision and other forms of adherence to Old Testament law to be saved, including the Ten Commandments. Paul is writing, the occasion of this letter is that's happening, Paul's hearing about this, and the Galatians are listening, and he's writing back to combat this with this robust message of grace wrapped up in Jesus' love for us, what he did for us on the cross. So Paul then is, he says here, right in verse 6, he's astonished. Uh, Not that there are false teachers. In verse 6, if you read this, it says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. So he's not astonished that there are false teachers. There will always be false teachers. There will always be false gospels. There will always be people who are seeking to lead Christians astray or who just don't know any better, who don't know the gospel well and who are in a misguided manner like the blind leading the blind, that idea. He's not astonished that there are false teachers. He's astonished that the Galatian Christians are listening to them. And he wastes no time getting right down to the issue. He's saying uh, in verse 6 and 7, by entertaining these false teachers' ideas, you're not just turning from the idea of the gospel, but you're turning from Jesus Christ himself. Because his grace is the gospel. He himself is the good news. And the gospel's from him as a gift. And so he's saying to add then, to say that, that the gospel's good, but this also this a- added extra good element you need to, to require something else is actually to subtract from him. It's to muck the whole thing up. And it's to say to God, to his face, you are not enough. To add to Jesus, to say we have to be good, to do other things, to abstain from other things besides the, the offer of the gospel, the offer of his grace, is to say to God, what you have to give is not sufficient. What you have to offer me isn't enough. You yourself aren't enough to save me from my sins. That's what we're saying in the subtext at least of what we do when we add to the gospel. If not outright, in the subtext of it, that's what we're saying. And so that's what Paul is addressing here. And it's really interesting, if you look at the way he's writing, the greater threat to Paul and to Christians, and I'll speak broadly here, the greater threat to Christians, to us in the room who believe in Jesus Christ, to people who know the gospel, 
The greater threat is adding to the gospel rather than subtracting from it. Because here, here what ha- what's happening in the Galatian churches is people aren't, aren't going in saying the gospel isn't true. They're not saying Jesus didn't die on a cross for your sins. They're not saying the resurrection didn't happen. They're acknowledging all of that. They're adding to it. See how much more dangerous that is and how much more hard it is to kind of decipher that and kind of sort through it? It's not subtracting from the gospel, not, not outright denying that's the danger. The danger is adding to the goodness of God's grace. It's saying, that's really, really good. Everything you believe about the gospel, these Judaizers are saying, everything you believe, basically everything, I agree with. Uh, except this one piece uh, of that it's enough. What you also have to do these extra things. So the danger is adding rather than, rather than subtracting. The gospel is, is uh, if you think about it this way, it is big. The gospel is multifaceted. It has many implications for our lives in all creation, but it is not wide. As in, at the core, centers on things in addition to Jesus' grace. What might help, too, is to think about it this way. Tim Keller says in his book, uh, Center Church, maybe elsewhere, too. This is not just unique to him, uh, but I'm going to quote him. He says, uh, we we need to distinguish between what the gospel is and what the gospel does in our lives and in the world. And it's very easy to confuse the two. It's very easy to blend the two. And blending them could make us just as guilty as these gospel distorters in Galatians 1 and in the first century. In fact, it does. So here's an example of things uh, that the gospel is not. These things might be things the gospel does in our life, but this is, these are examples of things that are, that are not the, the gospel. Things like this. The gospel is not love God and love people. The gospel is not serve the poor. The gospel is not help out with hurricane relief or use your spiritual gifts. The gospel is not the commandment, do not commit adultery. It's not evangelize your neighbor. It's not church plant. It's not even trust in God more or give your life to him. It's not the gospel. The gospel's not emotionalism or things like miraculous healings. And, and I could go on. Now, there, there are two layers to this. When the gospel speaks to this, the gospel says, the gospel is not requiring these things of you and me to be saved, but it's also saying once you're saved, once you believe in Jesus, you kind of cross that threshold or cross that line in the sand. The gospel also says don't centralize these things after you're saved. The gospel says I don't require, don't, God does not require these things, and God says do not centralize these things after you're saved. So the gospel isn't you're saved from your sins by Jesus' grace. Then these are the more mature things to center your life around once you're saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the door and the path and the final destination. Because these themselves are things we do. These are works. These would be, if they're required or if they're centralized in our life, they would be lumped on like appendages to the sufficient message that Jesus died for your sins and that's all you'll ever need. So requiring and centralizing are the two things the gospel speaks against when we think about things like these. These are things the gospel can, though, to be clear, affect in our lives. 
as it flows through us. And actually, later in Galatians, Paul will talk in some of these terms, so we'll get to that. But the gospel alone at the core is Jesus died for our sins on a cross. In fact, he already got there in the first couple of verses. He talks about grace. He talks about mercy. He talks about Jesus giving himself up for our sins, like a substitute, saying, I'll take the punishment. That's what he wishes on the church to begin. That's what we'll close the letter with later on, too, when he says, grace be with you. I wish that you'd stand strong in grace. I wish that you'd remember grace. I wish you'd be strong in the fact that God loves you and saved you just because he loves you, and that's it. Like Paul, he wasn't being good to earn the right to write this letter and to be an apostle. He was the worst of men, but simply because God chose him because he loved him. That's why he's saved. If you're saved in the room, it's because God wanted you to be. It's because he loved you. It's because he, it pleased him to reveal his son to you as the way to get to him. So it's not even just the idea of the gospel. It's the fact that God was alive in it to you. He, he softened your heart. That's how much he loves you and wants to save you. And so all these things, and I, I kind of summarized some other things before too. There's many ways to talk about the gospel, but this is what the gospel what it is. And what he's going to say throughout this letter, we'll keep coming back to this because he gives example after example after metaphor after Old Testament story after uh, example from human life after all, all, all these things throughout the book. What he's going to say is this is contrary to the law. In other words, this is contrary to what the law in the Old Testament required. It's, it's a different way of God relating to people. It doesn't come with condition. Because what, the, what he's going to say is, what the law says is, do the law and then you will be saved. Do this and you will find life. Quotes directly from Leviticus. Do these things and you will be saved in, in, in chapter 3. But what, what faith says is believe. What the gospel says is believe. Doing and believing are different things. They, they contrast. And so what he's going to do then is keep bringing us back to this idea of how the gospel, what it is and what it does, the, the center of it and the things that orbit around it are qualitatively different things. And the Judaizers mix them, they add, they twist, they distort, they confuse, they, they, they put haze around this otherwise clear thing that God is doing. And Paul's going to blow at it and simplify it and actually make it smaller and simpler in some ways, not more complex. saying, take all these things away that you're being asked to do. All these things that someone says require, God's asking, take it all away until you have a bloody man on a cross among criminals. Look at that and say, that's what had to happen to save you from your sins. And that's actually God's son. And put your faith in him alone. That's what he's going to do throughout the letter, in contrast with the Old Testament law, which we'll get more into in subsequent messages. So the first thing is, uh, the gospel is singular, that there's only one. And he talks about that in the first couple of, of verses. The second thing is, the gospel is bigger than the messenger. The second thing we learn about it is it's bigger than the messenger. In verses uh, 8 and 9, we, we see this. In fact, let me read this again. He says, but even if we, so Paul's speaking about himself and his associates, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you, Galatian Christians, a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you before and that you were saved through, let him be accursed. As we've said before, repeats himself, focuses more on himself now. As we said before, now I say again, if anyone, actually on others now, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So he's saying, we, my associates, anyone in your context, alluding to these Judaizers, an angel from heaven, 
covering all kinds of bases here, earthly and heavenly. If you ever hear a gospel that's contrary to the one you first received, do not believe it. Are you prepared to rebuke angels because of what they say about the gospel? Do you know it so well that you rebuke angelic beings in your dreams and if you see them before your eyes? This is kind of what he's getting at here. Or me, or me myself, the one who's seen Jesus Christ in the vision, the one who is writing half the New Testament. He wouldn't speak in those terms in that day, but uh, writing half the New Testament. Are you prepared to rebuke me and not listen to me if I change? See, how, uh, our authority, you guys, as Christians, is a derived authority from Jesus. Every church leader's, every Christian's authority to preach the gospel, it's derived. It's not the other way around. The gospel's not derive authority from you and, and from me. We are under it. We're messengers, and so it's bigger, it's bigger than us. So this is a staggering statement, and really helpful if you think about it for us, is that, one, authenticates the truthfulness of, of the gospel. If, if, this were Paul, if Christianity was Paul's idea, as some claim, he wouldn't say this. Cult leaders don't say this. Cult leaders say, change with me. I determine everything. Listen to me. But cult leaders don't say that there's this message above me and I'm just kind of this servant and really it's about this, this greater God, this greater kind of purpose. It's about them. The gospel is God's. This is what this is saying. The gospel belongs to him. It's bigger than all of us. It belongs to God. So messengers can change, but the gospel does not. This is uh, deeply practical for us too. And I, I'm going to read something here for you guys and I've got it on screen. I want to make sure this is clear. This is something to apply here and now as well. None of you know the Apostle Paul personally. I don't. I've never seen an angel in the flesh. Even, I don't think even my, in a dream. Maybe some of you have. Um, I haven't. So I, I think what we have to do is kind of extrapolate some of the principles here. What is this really saying here and now? 21st century, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Hiawatha Church, Hiawatha's leadership. Uh, what, what is this really saying? People we podcast. The, the Gospels we hear out there that we think are, are true, but they're not. What is this saying? It's saying this. Should I, speaking of myself, Spencer, the other pastor here, the other elders, pastors of our church, the deacons, your community group leader, your old pastor, the guy or gal you podcast and think is just amazing, a Christian author, a professor, a famous Christian blogger, a Christian musician you respect, the person who led you to Christ in the first place, your old mentor, your parents, your best friend, the person who influenced you more than anyone else ever has spiritually, a resurrected Paul the Apostle, or even an angel of light miraculously appearing to you in a dream or right before your eyes, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, contrary to what the Bible actually says, contrary to Christ crucified alone, don't listen to them. Don't follow them. And don't lose heart. It's easy to do in those situations. Don't lose heart, though, because the gospel isn't tied to them. It's above them. It belongs to God. And I know some of you have seen people who used to mentor you, the people who led you to Christ fall away from the faith. I know that's hard. I know that's hard. But don't lose heart. Paul's saying the gospel's not tied to people who used to spiritually influence you. It's above them. It's greater than them. So what we're saying here is if I should stop preaching Christ crucified, then I should be called out. Then that's actually a good reason to leave a church. Uh, there are a lot of reasons you should stay and be a part of solutions uh, when, you, when you have problems in a church, but there are, there are times to leave. 
One time to leave is when the leadership stops preaching adds to grace. So keeps preaching grace, but adds to it, as though there's more to do in, on a required basis and more to centralize to actually be, actually be Christians. So what this is saying is, wh- whoever it is, whatever it is, whoever you listen to, I don't care how prominent and powerful, influential they've been, how, how right they are otherwise, maybe, in some of their writings or in their leadings of you. If they should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that first saved you, if they add to the cross and the empty tomb, do not listen, do not follow, do not lose heart. And Paul actually has harsher words for leaders. He says, let them be accursed. You know, this is one of those things that kind of flies in the face of, you know, how we, how we um, maybe tend to think, in, and also, I'm using we broadly here, by the way, but I'm just saying, in, in American culture, when we when we think about what it means to argue, you know, and this isn't saying go out and just curse people that disagree with you. You're cursed. No, you're cursed, you know. I'm not saying that uh, either, but, but I think it, it is saying it's possible to be wrong, which is kind of like, what? It is, especially about the gospel. We can be very, very wrong about it. And just because someone's a good person who has read the Bible and who is witty in their writings witty in their podcasts doesn't mean they automatically should be listened to. They might be wrong. And so when Paul's saying here, let them be accursed, he's speaking like a little more to the higher level like teacher types who are responsible and and elsewhere in the Bible it says teachers will be held to a higher account. So let them be accursed because they are teachers held to a higher standard. Let them be accursed because they are leading people astray. Because they should know better. Because they are on the highest level misrepresenting God and what it means to be saved. A lot's at stake. Paul's not, you know, an unbridled, angry person here. He just cares. He's like a dad, and his kids are being, you know, lured to a cliff. And he's like, he's like screaming at them, like, in love, you got to know what you're listening to. Eternal life is at stake here. This is not just like, oh, my theology is kind of imperfect. We'll talk about that. This is actually the, the core of what you believe about God in Jesus are at stake, and, and that means when we, if we listen to it, uh, we risk completely, as he says earlier, deserting Jesus um, all the way to hell. Now, the, the, the point here, like I was saying before about cursing, the, the, the point is broadly speaking not to hold people to perfect standards all the time. Uh, we all have bad theology sometimes. I have bad theology sometimes. None of us per- understand these things perfectly. So the point is to hold people to perfect theological standards. Uh, but it is to say, look out. Watch your doc. As Paul says to Timothy in one of his letters to one of his younger associates, in, uh, I think it's 1 Timothy, he says, watch your doctrine closely. Watch your Bible theology closely. Watch what you believe about the gospel very closely. Do you do that? Do you watch what you believe about the gospel very closely under a microscope? Do you care this deeply? They should speak to us and rub at us a bit here. This is, this is a challenge, and I think part of the imperative. Is this, do we care this much? Watch out, watch your doctrine closely and watch others' doctrine closely so that we have better antennas up for what the gospel is and, and what it isn't. Uh, an example of this, we could choose a whole bunch of things. One example that came up um, uh, this weekend recently, uh, is an example of what I'm going to call gospel waywardness uh, is this, this quote from Jen Hatmaker. 
influential author uh, and, and speaker uh, these days. So, uh, but she says in her book, For the Love, God measures our entire existence by only two things, how we love him and how we love people. So read that one more time. God measures our entire existence by only two things, how we love him and how we love people. And so in light of all of this, you know, I think many today, again, general statement, but including many in the church, are increasingly unable to distinguish between teachings like this and what the Bible actually says about grace. Some are more inclined to say at times, that sounds pretty good, and who am I to disagree with that? She's a Christian, right? She's witty, I trust her, she's funny, and Jesus can be to her whatever she wants. But here's an here's a example of some of the questions I ask when I read things like this. And, and this kind of stuff's all over, so this is just one example. It's not really about her, because I'm not, it's just, it's about the issue here. And that, some of the questions are this. One, where is Jesus in this quote? Where's the cross? Where's the empty tomb? What presuppositions are in play here? Where is she getting this from the Bible? Is there a verse for this? Does this lead us to worship? Does it lead us to freedom? Does it lead us to joy? And maybe here's the, the bigger one, and I'll pull from later here. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks. But did Jesus have to die to make that possible? Did Jesus have to die on a cross to make that type of ultimate how God measures us, how he measures our existence? Did he have to die to make that possible? And the answer is no, he didn't. That should be a huge red flag, huge red flag. If we see statements of, this is the core of the faith. This is how God ultimately thinks about you. He measures your existence by only these things. If Christ isn't there at the center of that, hugely suspect. In this case, he didn't have to die if we talk about how you love God and how you love other people. That's an example of works or law or an appendage to the otherwise simple and sufficient gospel of Christ. So what about uh, 1 John uh, 4.10? This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. More questions. How does that fit in uh, with this? Or, or even this idea, you know, do you, some, some of your parents, most of you maybe are parents in the room, do you as parents measure your kids' entire existence by how well they love you? Do you measure your kids' entire existence, to borrow from these words, by how well they love you or by how well they love other people? Of course you don't. If you're a good parent, you don't. Uh, you don't measure their entire existence by... So why do we put that on God, who is like a father to us? Good parents don't measure their, entire, their kids' entire existence by how well they perform. I don't measure my son's entire existence by how much he loves me. His existence, rather, is determined by how much I love him and by how much his mother, my wife, loves, loves him and our daughters. That, that defines him much more. He can grieve us with his hate. He can grieve us with his sin. But his existence is not entirely determined by his love and by what he has to, has to do. Instead, we are children of God. Usually where this idea comes from, this idea of centering, loving God and people, uh, and, and you see it all over the place. Uh, churches that have visions that, that center on love God, love people. Have you ever seen that statement? 
in a church, what are you about? We're about two things, love God, love people, period. Uh, that's a common thing. Um, usually where this idea comes from is that the Old Testament law can be summed up in two things, the Bible says, love God and love people. But, but what that fails to understand is that the law, the Bible says elsewhere, has been passed up by something even greater. The, the, the conditionality behind love God above all other gods and love others above yourself perfectly or else be damned has been passed up by something or rather someone else, Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's been passed up by Jesus on a cross showing his love for us, a much greater kind of love. A love that doesn't ask anything back because true love doesn't ask things back. So, so let me free you from the burden of this gospel wayward quote. Your existence is not determined by how well you love God. God is not asking that of you. Free yourself of that yoke. You can't love him that well. You, the whole point of the gospel is as you weren't loving him, he loved you. Not as you were and even now as Christians, though he woos us to himself, is it ever perfect? You know, what, what, what the gospel is saying is our daily bread, our daily food, is nourish yourself on the fact that this is love, not that we have loved God. That's written to Christians, by the way. It's not about conversion or non-Christians hearing this alone. This is about food for Christians. Gal the Galatian church's Christians need to hear this stuff. Every day, what's the daily bread? Not that we've loved God, not that we ever will love as much as he loved us, but that he loved us. How did he love us? By sending his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not by us surrendering our life to him, but about him surrendering his life to us. That's another um, gospel wayward idea in the American church these days, is that the gospel is you surrendering your life to Jesus. That's not in the Bible. The gospel is God surrendering his son for you. The, the gospel is God surrendering his very life, his one and only precious loved son, unto death on a cross for your sins. That's what the gospel is. See how much more that's about him? How much more that's about, and doing that because he loved you. How much more that's about his love for you? than it is about you manufacturing, kind of working up, willing within yourself this kind of love for a creator you can't see. God made himself, or made us to share himself with us. He made us to love us. He made us to die for us. He made us to save us. In this last section, too, uh, pulls at this. Well, uh, the third section here. What else do we learn about the gospel is that it's not a people-pleasing kind of message. Um, to quote Jesus here in John 5, to begin some background, before Jesus dies, one of his teachings, he says to people who think they're pretty good, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So, so Jesus loves kind of poking at these kinds of things, at what the idea of like true religion really is. You know, he's saying you can't truly believe in Jesus if you're too busy patting each other on the back. And part of that back patting, part of that kind of mutual celebration of each other's awesomeness comes through works, comes through this, this uh, kind of foundational religious uh, groundwork that says that the basis of who we are is what we do, law-keeping. He's saying this to people who keep the Old Testament law really well. 
He's saying, how can you receive the glory that comes from heaven himself, Jesus? Jesus is the glory of God. How can you receive the gift that is Christ if you're about law, if you're about doing, if you're about being good people? How can you do that? So what Paul's getting at back in Galatians and similar idea in, in verse 10, he contrasts the idea of people-pleasing and being a grace person and then and vice versa. So being a gospel person means not pleasing people. This doesn't mean that the gospel won't be sweet to people. It obviously is. It's the best news in the universe. Healing balm for our souls. It tells us we're loved beyond our wildest dreams by our creator. But paradoxically, it's extremely offensive because it's not at all about us. And we can claim this much of, of why we're saved. This much. Not 0.1%. This much we can claim. That's the offensive nature of it. This is why he's speaking in these terms. I'm being persecuted for being a man of grace, not a man of works. And so the inverse of, of verse 10 is pleasing people is closely aligned with teaching works. Pleasing people is closely aligned with teaching anti-gospels. That, in other words, that we're good people, that we can do it, that we command our destiny, that a generic sense of love is all that matters or whatever you want to fill into the gap there. But the gospel says the gospel says the opposite. And coming to believe the gospel is, is kind of like, um, you know, winning a foot race with your friends and your family, like on Thanksgiving or something, home for the weekend. Winning a foot race and then feeling pretty good about yourself when you cross the finish line, but then turning around and realizing that everyone else slowed down and let you win. And it's kind of that movement from, I did it, I won. And you kind of turn around and realize two things: one, I'm not that great. And two, I'm loved. That's what coming to the, truly coming to the gospel feels like a lot of times. That's offensive, right? That it's not about us. We move, we move from I'm great, I'm fast, to I'm not that great, I'm slow, but I'm loved and people wanted me to win. They must kind of like me. It's not a perfect analogy, but just whatever. Uh, it, it's, that's, that's the feeling, though, at least wrapped up in it. We move from law, I can do this, I'm pretty fast, to it's not at all about it. And we look at the bloody cross and we say, if that had to happen to get me in, how little is it about me? So two things, I'm not great, but I'm loved. That, that's the movement. I'm good, to I'm not good, but I'm also loved by, by God. Martin Luther says this in his commentary, on Galatians 1.10, it's actually this verse. He says, No man can say that we, Christians, are seeking the favor and praise of men with our doctrine. We teach that all men are naturally depraved. We condemn man's free will. We condemn his strength. We condemn his wisdom. We condemn his righteousness. We say that we obtain grace by the free mercy of God alone for Christ's sake. This is no preaching to please men. This sort of preaching procures for us the hatred and disfavor of the world. It procures for us persecutions, excommunications, murders, and curses. So true. Galatians 5.11, I guess, again, further down in the book, we'll get to this, but Paul says there, but if, brothers, I still preach the law, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. You see the contrast? If we're preaching good works, saying you can do it, do all this stuff, be a good person, 
uh, to enter in, into, the, into God's kingdom, that's not offensive. There's no offense in that. The offense comes up when you say you could be perfect the rest of your life and still not get in. It actually says really good people will not enter God's kingdom. Really good people will not be saved in the end because they don't cling to Christ. But really bad people who do cling to Christ will. It's the last will be first idea as Jesus talks in his ministry. This upside-down nature of the kingdom. Everything's flipped. The way we think about success, running races, what it means to climb ladders, what it means to be good, all that's flipped. And he's saying sometimes the really good people are the ones who need to trip over the root in the path of the cross and fall on their faces before they realize what true salvation really is. So it's interesting. Uh, serving Christ and his true gospel, and I'm speaking to you Christians for a second here. If you're not a Christian, I mean, listen, but <laughs> hope you listen. This is for those who are, are believing the gospel. Just need to know this about you and your ministry and what it means to be a grace-centered person. Serving Christ and his true gospel means you will be an enemy not just to evil, but to volunteerists, humanitarians, and moralists. People who love doing good just without Jesus. And who have no time for a message that declares over and over and over again that if God did not send his son to die for us, no one would be saved. You understand? If you're a grace person, you won't just be an enemy to evil, you'll be an enemy to good people. Because grace says goodness isn't enough. Grace says goodness isn't, isn't getting you any further down the path of righteousness. Doesn't mean we don't do good. Christians go headlong into humanitarian efforts just for different reasons than non-Christians do. That's a different, different story. But it's saying that we will be an enemy to good, just like Jesus was. Really, really, really good people hated him. Really, really, really good people did not enter, did not understand his mission because his message, his ultimate ministry, dying on a cross, was too much of an offense. It, sa- it said to all of their good works, not enough. It said to all of their acts of righteousness, not enough. It said to all of their ladder climbing efforts, not enough. It's not even what I'm looking for. I want to love you as your creator. I want to pour out myself, give myself. I want to surrender myself for you. Stop trying to surrender yourself for me. I want to give myself to you. Stop trying to give yourself to me. Think about what the gospel is. And, and so as we talk about implications, this is, a, this is actually, I was talking to the elders, some of the elders here this morning about this. This is a really hard sermon for me to, to wrap up <laughs> this week. It, it always is sometimes. But this is a really hard one because there's not a lot of imperatives. And the implications here for our lives are just myriad. And the rest of the book will flush that out. So we'll kind of let the book speak to those, I think, as we go throughout the series. But but one thing I, I do want to just throw this passage back up here for a second in its entirety, today's passage, and ask you a question. Is Paul's attitude here towards the gospel and the centrality of grace and how he combats false gospels indicative of your spirituality? Is this very foreign to you, this attitude? Does it seem like an overreaction or does this make a lot of sense? Is it, is it, does it mirror how much and how careful you are about the purity of the gospel of Christ? 
And again, in a day where it's almost impossible to be wrong about things, I'm not saying that so much in the church, though it seeps in the church, but just in the world, where it's almost impossible to be wrong and no one wants to say anybody's wrong, this flies in the face of that. And the point is not to be a jerk about people that disagree with you and that are wrong about the gospel, but the point is what about the care and the concern and the zeal over the fact that God died for us? You know, and... and um, having so much of our antennas up over that about what it is and what it isn't that we can sniff out statements like, God measures your entire existence by only two things, how much you love him and how much you love others. If our antennas are up at that point, we'll ask the right questions. We'll see glaring absences of a savior we adore in statements like that. Glaring absences of the empty tomb itself, glaring absences of freedom, which is a, a major element to this book. He's going to pound home is because of all this gospel stuff, you are the freest people in the world. Freest people in the world. But things that lay a, a burden, a yoke around our neck will be suspicious. And so we'll question with the right kind of gospel questions. So if you, if you answer no to that question, though, if this is not really where you're at, that's okay. Uh, but pray about it. Confess that. Talk to church leaders about it, your friends. Um, what does this look like in your life today? What does it look like to have this kind of attitude towards true, beautiful gospels and fake gospels that maintain the gospel but just kind of lump on like this ugly wart on the back, or the back of the thing? Like, ooh, you know. How do we... How do we handle that? How do we speak to it? Do, are we courageous enough to speak to those things, even if it means we'll be, we'll be persecuted? The solution, if, and, and I'm with you, if, if we're not totally there, I'm not totally there. We will have days where we're not at all feeling that. The solution is more of Jesus, not works, more, more of the beautiful Christ. And, um, and so the, to pull from those three big things and, and to leave you with this, uh, other imperatives you could pull from this is one, don't desert Jesus who called you in grace. He's not the door and good works are the path. He's the door, the path, and the final destination entirely. Second, have the right antennas up. We talked about that. For, for teachings that even unintentionally add to the gospel. And then, and then last, be willing to suffer for the gospel. You will, you guys, you will. A lot of you already have. If you haven't, you will. If you centralize grace, you will. If you centralize works, you won't. Because who's offended by the message, uh, go and help out with hurricane relief? You know, like, give to that. Go, go drive down to Florida and help out. No one's offended by that. Might be a great thing to do. We can even do it in the name of Christ. That's great. But if you centralize that, how is the offense of the cross at, at the center of that message? See the difference? So be prepared. If, if you are a person of grace, if you centralize the right gospel, you will be hated and persecuted, as Luther says, uh, cursed, hated, uh, thought overly simple and unintellectual. You'll be too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. You'll be this kind of weird centrist thing, the Jesus freaky guy or gal, and, and people know how to categorize you, and, and um, unascetic, you don't like, do enough religious stuff, you know, you're just f too free for religious people. All kinds of weird stuff, but, um, but like Luther's saying, like Paul's saying, the offense of the cross need, needs to be there. 
Um, don't try to offend people, because for some people it won't be. They'll, they'll rejoice over the message, and they'll, be, they'll become Christians because of the message of the cross that you bear, but just know it's going to happen. It's a byproduct of preaching grace alone, not grace plus works. Grace alone, grace alone, grace alone. Uh, people leave our churches. They already have. Many people have left, left Hiawatha simply because of grace. They told us that. This stuff happens. It happened in Paul's day, Jesus' day. Uh, it happened to the Savior of the world. It's going to happen to us. It will happen to you individually. Uh, it's okay. We can mourn that, but know that's part of the expansion of the kingdom is the gospel will be a healing balm, and it will be the root in the path of the cross-country race that we trip over in our race of righteousness that we're running in, our, in all of our good works. It'll be both, and that's good. So with that said, let me pray for us. Uh, God, thank you for this challenging, uh, difficult passage. Uh, I, I pray you would help it to shape us throughout the week as we think afresh about it, think about how much we care about the purity of, of the gospel and what that means for us and in uh, our church here and whatever church we're a part of, maybe if we're visiting. Um, but God, help us to keep our hand on the plow. Help us to stay on the straight and narrow of, of the gospel and to have the right questions and the right antennas up for things that sound good but aren't. Even sound biblical but aren't gospel. It's very possible. And that's actually part of the story is there's two testaments, two covenants that are different. They're meant to contrast. Jesus didn't add to the old by becoming the new thing, the New Testament himself and his blood. He did away with the old, Hebrews says. It's very, very different. So, Thank you that you have done away with law and all the conditionality wrapped up with it because we couldn't be good enough through it. So thank you for coming to replace it with yourself, your body and blood. Uh, and as we're seeing in Galatians, that, that's true for Christians. Otherwise, this wouldn't be written to churches. We need this right here. The Christians in the room, we need this uh, message. So uh, pound it into our brain, uh, God, and um, remind us that it is singular, the gospel is. It is bigger than the messenger. Uh, and it is not a people-pleasing message because at the core, it's about you and not about us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.